Welcome to another episode of Wild Law Pod. My very special guest today is Beth Lance. Beth is the managing partner of Lance & Hall, LLP. Her practice is focused on family law, criminal defense, estate planning, and lobbying. She counts among her lobbying clients the Wyoming Trial Lawyers Association and AT&T. Beth graduated from the University of Wyoming Law School in 2004. In law school, along with being an excellent student, she was also the director of the Defender Aid Program. After school, she spent four years at the Wyoming Attorney General's Office, Civil Division, and then she spent two years with the Human Resources Division before working as a senior public defender from 2010 to 2013. After that, she was an associate at Woodhouse, Roden, and Nethercott. Then in 2015, she started Lance Law Office in Cheyenne, Wyoming. Lance Law Office has grown into Lance and Hall LLP, where Beth is the managing partner. Beth is here today to talk about how to start and grow your own law firm, something many lawyers struggle with, how to get paid on time and every time. We recorded the podcast in a downstairs office, and the mics picked up some faint footsteps that we did not hear until the playback. So if you hear that, it's not your imagination. All right, let's get started. It's wonderful to have you here, Beth, and uh, you talk a little bit about starting a law firm and then spend a little more time on how to get paid on time every time. First, I wanted to give the audience a uh, a little background. Uh, did you always want to be a lawyer or how did that come about? Yeah. Well, thanks so much for having me, Justin. Of course. Um, I did not always want to be a lawyer. I was always a little bit of an overachiever. Um, most of my childhood, I was sure I wanted to be a doctor. And um, however, I was being raised primarily, but actually by my grandpa and my grandma on my mom's side. And my grandpa was a lawyer. So I certainly was always getting this kind of lawyer influence in my life. And we spent a lot of time at home discussing things like government and politics. Those were things that he followed really closely in the news. And we would have discussions every day over the morning newspaper or in the evening watching McNeil Lair News Hour. Uh, so it was definitely always a really big part of my life that lawyering was probably a good fit, but I had it in my mind that I really wanted to be a doctor. Um, and even into high school, I was volunteering at my local emergency room and taking advanced science classes in high school. Uh, but then my senior year, I had an opportunity to shadow a doctor and I chose to shadow an anesthesiologist, which meant I got to actually attend a surgery. So I was so excited about this opportunity. I had to get up really early one morning and head over to St. Elizabeth's Hospital um, in Lincoln, Nebraska, where I grew up. And when I got over there, um, I got to go to the doctor's lounge and meet all the physicians and then I got to scrub in and go into an actual surgery. Wow. And so I'm so excited about this. Um, but just as soon as the surgeon took the scalpel to start cutting the patient, the room went black. Oh no. And I fainted. <laughs> and I had never had up to this point anyone be so mad at me. I woke up in the hallway, the nurse dragging me out of the OR wow. and being just almost hostile and really upset. 
that I had caused any disruption in this um, OR and in this surgery and basically just drug me out. I came to and she just instructed me to get out of there, basically. That's brutal. It was. It was. I was devastated um, that I had caused a disruption, that I had caused these nurses and doctors to be upset with me. So it was really such a uh, humbling experience to go in and uh, learn that apparently the side of blood and the true surgery experience was really not something I could tolerate, which I just, to that point, didn't know that, right? I mean, I think you don't know until you know. And so I had gone home. I was just really upset from the whole experience. (laughs) And my grandfather just said, you know, I just have always wondered if it if that's the right fit for you, (laughs) if it wouldn't be a better fit for you to consider law. And that's really all it took was for him to just be that little birdie in my ear. And I really took a hard look at it and reassessed my senior year of high school and then determined that I was going to pursue that, that that was going to be, um, just so much more in, I think, my natural wheelhouse and my natural talents lied there. Um, Always excelled in English and writing and government and those classes and uh, struggled a little bit in some of those advanced science classes. So it became more and more apparent where I should probably be. So I decided to uh, major in political science and from the beginning with the intention of law school. So that was definitely totally shifted gears then and decided that was a better, better fit. Well, that's pretty great that you can pinpoint the exact moment that your future changed. I'm just kind of wondering where was the cut that kind of like, where was the cut that occurred on the body? Oh, it was a mastectomy surgery. Oh, wow. So it was right underneath a female patient's breast. And so it was also fairly lengthy cut. It was probably three inches long or so. So it wasn't real minor. It was kind of a major, <laughs> major incision to have to witness. And I realized that, uh, yeah, that the side of that was not something I tolerated. That is a very traumatic place to see the first cut ever. I mean, I think yeah. a lot of people might find themselves out on the floor. <laughs> yes. I wonder, um, but yeah, especially I, I knew I would be in a surgery, but I really was more interested in following the anesthesiologist. I'm not sure I also completely realized that I would see fully the surgery. I think I thought more I'd be watching the machine and all of that with the anesthesia. So it was all a little shocking. <laughs> right. Well, before we go on, just out of curiosity, what kind of lawyer was your grandpa? So for most of his career, he worked at the Nebraska Attorney General's office um, on behalf of the Department of Roads and did primarily eminent domain work, uh, but it was often in court. So he was a litigator. Um, He was known as a very good trial attorney. So he um, was quite skilled 
on his feet and in a courtroom. And so I guess early on also you got to see that some people would be very happy with you and some people would be very not happy with you if you were a lawyer. Yes, that's exactly right. <laughs> yeah. Is that something that he talked with you about or that you could you had to see him deal with? So we had some interesting conversations um, about being an attorney. He He certainly was honest about that it could be a very stressful profession. Um, he dealt with stress in the way I think you did in those years, which is chain smoking cigarettes and right. and having whiskey at your desk, right? It was a right. different time. <laughs> so, you know, now I'm trying to deal with it with getting out into nature and learning to meditate and healthier ways of coping. Uh, but yeah, he, he was honest that it, it came with stress for sure. Um, but he also had some really fun stories when he had been a very young lawyer. It was prior to there being a public defender's office um, that had not been created yet um, by the case law. And so what was happening is judges were just pulling whatever lawyer and saying, hey, you have to represent this person, um, particularly for cases that held large sentences and, and that. And so he randomly was assigned to defend a gentleman on a murder case. And so he had really interesting stories from doing criminal defense work. And we had a lot of discussions about that case when the O.J. Simpson case came out. And I was attending Catholic high school at the time. The prominent opinion of that case was uh, that justice was not served, that O.J. should certainly have been convicted and that all of that was a huge disappointment to most people um, that I was around at school and otherwise. But my grandfather at that time was retired and he watched that whole trial on TV. It's very entertaining for him as a retired attorney. And he had such a different opinion on it that really uh, stuck with me because he talked about that in a criminal case, it's the burden of the state to be able to prove that you committed a crime. And it would be better for someone who may have committed a crime to not be convicted than for someone who didn't commit a crime to be convicted. And so we had to be sure that we had a justice system that swung in favor of the defense and in favor of the defendant, because that really is what upholds people's individual constitutional rights. And he talked about the specifics of that trial and all of the failures of the prosecution to meet their burden. And that in his mind, the jury made absolutely the right decision considering the evidence they were presented, which is what they're supposed to do, right? They, they make their decision on what is presented in that courtroom, not all of the things we heard in the media, not all of the extra information that was being provided to everyone um, outside of that courtroom. 
when um, everything goes right. Right, exactly. So when he started explaining to me that that was, in his mind, actually a very good decision, that that was the right decision and that the jury did do their job, that was um, just very eye-opening and it started making me really start to think about um, our criminal justice system and how it works. And I just became more and more interested in, in that. Very cool. Yeah. So right about the time you're, you know, looking to start law school, do you know at that time what kind of lawyer you want to be? Or do you, have you started to develop that picture in your mind? I had, I was always very interested in criminal defense. Um, and Throughout my time in college, I continued to feel that way. I took a lot of classes on the Constitution and things like um, that that made me continue to feel pretty drawn to criminal defense. Uh, then in law school, I uh, certainly took a caseload that I think emphasized moving into uh, criminal law and was also a director of our Defender Aid Clinic at the law school. So that did continue um, throughout all that time. I, have, I mean, I love the Defender Aid Clinic after I got into it, but the, the reason I got into it was basically because I like a challenge and everyone said, you know, if you want to win, go prosecution. And if you want to lose, go Defender Aid. And I was like, screw that. I'm going to go Defender Aid and hopefully win. You know, and I ended up with one appeal that won. And so right. that's yeah. really cool. It is. And I think I think the wins are that much sweeter, right? When you're on when you're the underdog in every case. Uh there's something in my mind, I think, um, I, I like an underdog and I like to root for an underdog in sports and everything else. And so I think uh when you're looking at the law, there, there's something that I was drawn to, too, about um, not being on the side that you, you know, win 90% of the time, but that the hard fought wins. Right. Yeah. I think, too, I'm going to, I can't say who this quote is from, but uh, I think there's a lot of truth, too, that few things are more satisfying than doing something that someone has told you you can't do. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> I would agree. Yeah, yeah. I, I like a challenge too. And I think that that's uh, exactly what probably criminal defense offers a little more than prosecution um, does. So, Well, that's cool. I knew you were in the Defender A clinic, but I didn't know that you managed it. Uh, you had to pick up some pretty valuable skills for later on in your practice managing law students in that capacity. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the Defender Aid Clinic was uh, by far the best experience of my law school career. It, for a couple of different reasons, it was at that time primarily an appellate practice. Um, now the Defender Aid Clinic at the University of Wyoming, where I attended, includes some trial level work as well, which I think is a great addition to that program. But at the time I was there, it was completely focused on appellate and post-conviction work. And for me, that was uh, the first time 
really that I got a lot of one-on-one attention from a professor on my legal writing skills. And the critique and the editing that I received from Professor Corsell, who was there at the time, on my legal writing skills has been potentially the most valuable thing to my entire law career. Uh, She brought my writing from very average to below average to, I think, very superior. And that has served me so well as an attorney because it doesn't matter whether you're a trial attorney or an appellate attorney or a transactional attorney, you're going to write. And writing is uh, just such a huge part, I think, of being a skilled attorney. And so to have honed that skill specifically through that was, um, to me, the most valuable part of my law school career. But to your question of the additional skills I learned, such as supervising um, others, particularly in that situation, you're supervising peers. So you're asked to supervise people. You you don't have more experience than they do. You... um, And so that can be difficult. Their ability to want to accept you as a supervisor can be a challenge. And additionally, the students that are involved, some are more dedicated than others to the cause. So getting people motivated to actually do work in the clinic um, could be a real challenge sometimes. I I will say I, I don't know that I excelled at that piece. I was grateful to the students that took it as seriously as I did and wrote wonderful briefs and gave their all in every case that they handled. But I certainly, um, there were students that probably skated and wrote, you know, one sentence reduction the whole semester and that's all they did. And, uh, I think I did learn um, how to do that differently in the future is what I probably learned. I would not say that I did a wonderful job when I was a student and I was trying to do that supervision. I think today, I think I have learned a lot, um, mostly by being supervised um, and being under other attorneys is how I think I've learned how to best supervise. And that's because I've had good and bad supervisors, right? And I think we learn just as much sometimes from the bad ones as we do the good ones. And so I've taken so much of that now, I think, and incorporated all of that into my office and into mentoring young attorneys in that role as well. Very cool. And I think... You know, for me, the biggest things that I've learned from are typically my failures or the things that I'm not good at. But it's also watching the good things that other attorneys do and then the bad things is one of the best things that you can learn from. Oh, no question. I love to watch other attorneys uh, in trial. I wish I had more time to attend more trials that I'm not involved in (laughs) and just watch lawyers try cases because every single time I have watched a trial, I have 
learned many things. And that's exactly right. I've learned just as much from the lawyer that failed uh, in the endeavor as the lawyer who won. And all of those things are just really important uh, lessons to observe. And of course, we do ourselves, right? Our own trial and error in the courtroom. Over time, we learn what works and what doesn't, for sure. But it's um, it's always valuable to uh, observe other attorneys as well, I think. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Um, Jody and I went down to see a concert in San Antonio, and the night before, we ended up uh, at the bar visiting with an attorney who had the trial the next day. The fellow trial lawyer. And before we knew it, we were sitting in, in court uh, observing Wadire just to see if we could give him a pointer or two on which jurors to pick and found it fascinating, you know? And Absolutely. Yeah. It's totally fascinating. And I love to hear that. Um, when I was a public defender and I did do criminal defense, I always took a paralegal or another attorney with me to every trial, at least for jury selection, because it's very hard, I feel, to be properly engaged with the jury and at the same time, be sure you're observing all of the jurors, right? That's so hard because if I'm speaking with one specific juror, I can't also be sure out of my periphery I see what you know, juror number five is doing over on the left and what their facial expressions are, right? So you almost, I always felt I always needed that second person to sit at council table who could write down what jury five's expressions were when I had such and such conversation with juror number one. And so I never did a trial without someone with me, at least through jury selection and um, there were a few lawyers that gave me a hard time about that. I think there was a little bit of a perception that I needed help, that I wasn't capable of, you know, trying a case by yourself, right? Like there was this badge of honor that you weren't really a real lawyer unless you tried a case entirely by yourself. And I completely don't buy into that. <laughs> I'm with you. I, I, I want to try a case and I want to win, right? I want it. I want to use every tool in my toolbox to get the best outcome for a client. And so I always um, would take someone with me during jury selection because it, I can't multitask that much. Like we're all limited. I mean, I'm very good at multitasking as attorneys, I think in a courtroom, but there is a limit <laughs> to oh. how much I can observe and do at the same time. And so um, that was one thing that I've always done and continue to do. I think it's super smart. I mean, we're lucky here to be in Cheyenne. We get to see some of the very best attorneys in the state come and try cases. And I've never gone and like love to go watch Wadir whenever I can. And I've never seen a really good attorney who doesn't have at least one person with them. And often they have three or four stuck in the the audience seats so it's not obvious to the jurors that they've got others watching too just to get as many eyes on the crowd as possible so i think you're very smart to do that yeah and i completely agree with you and i would agree that uh when i've observed attorneys from what we consider the best law firms and some of the better attorneys um i would agree they're 
they're not there by themselves. <laughs> That's not what they're doing. <laughs> yeah, losing a trial is it's not a very great badge of honor to to give to your clients. So. No, it isn't. So I mean, yes, I I ask for help. I don't expect to do it by myself. Very cool. Well, I think we jumped a little bit ahead if we're going chronological, but I wanted to visit the too about your first job working for the attorney general's office and kind of hear a little bit about what you did there and, and what skills you picked up. Yeah, absolutely. So when I did graduate law school, um, my goal was to be a public defender at that time. And there were just simply no openings um, in the public defender's office um, when I graduated. And so Diane Lozano had said, you know, if there is an opening in the future, let me know kind of conversation, which was good. Uh, however, I had to have a job. <laughs> it's a good thing after school. Yeah. <laughs> Parents tend to think highly of that. Yes, for <laughs> sure. Yeah. Especially after you borrow all that money. Right. Uh, so I was, I think very fortunate that I was hired at the attorney general's office. I was hired in their civil division and I spent a lot of time representing different state agencies. So I would say primarily my day was filled with phone calls from people at the agencies I represented, just with all kinds of different legal questions from contracts um, that they may be involved in or sometimes personnel issues, just anything that could come up within the state agency. And then a lot of legal opinions. So sometimes the question led to something more complicated or detailed that required extensive research and writing to provide a full uh, thought out and well-written legal opinion on an issue. And so those were the kinds of things I was doing when I first started. And I had just wonderful mentorship um, at the attorney general's office. So to be a new attorney and to have the level of oversight uh, that I had was actually, I felt wonderful. Um, I learned so much from those attorneys who reviewed my work and edited my work and helped me along the way and um, were always with open doors and ready to discuss cases and issues. And so it really was, I think, just the perfect place for a brand new lawyer. I heard from so many of my other colleagues that those first years were so difficult because where they worked, there was almost no mentorship. And unfortunately, law school teaches us very little about how to be a lawyer. And so much of being an attorney is learned on the job. And so when you don't have attorneys that are willing to make the time to really help train you, uh, I think it becomes very difficult. And I think those years would have been so difficult if I had been somewhere without the level of mentorship that I had. So um, I really enjoyed my time in the attorney general's office, uh, primarily because of the help and mentorship that existed there. Well, that, that makes a lot of sense hearing you talk about that. And one of the things I think that's great about that and probably also then not so great is you're getting incredible legal mentorship and like client management skills 
and you're getting it in an environment where you're not worried about fees being paid. Absolutely. Which is great until you need to, you know, in the future make the transition. But it's really nice to hear of what a great environment the state is, you know, for a new attorney, because that's a, a great way to learn without like always be billing kind of pressure to go along with it. Absolutely. That's such a good point, I think, because yes, then later making that transition to private practice, while I'm very glad I did, that was definitely the biggest piece of that transition, right, was learning how to bill and how to make money and how to get, you know, assurance that clients will pay. Uh, That is definitely the biggest piece then. Um, when making, I think, a transition from government to private work. And I think one of the lessons that I haven't really had the opportunity to do a lot of direct mentoring of like an associate, but I've seen enough friends and things and, and just other law firms and the billing dynamic always seems to be if the firm is busy, then the mid-level associates, the junior partners, even the partners none of them really make time to mentor because they're all too worried about their own billables. And so you end up with these associates who have these huge billable requirements, but then are in this mentorship free zone, which seems horribly unfair and miserable from most of them that I talk to or or see how they interact. Absolutely. And I do think that that is probably an unfortunate phenomenon that exists maybe more often than not. Um, For me, one thing we've done specifically is we are growing at a small pace, right? And that is very deliberate because we are taking into consideration our bandwidth to mentor. So to take on an attorney, which we've done, um, our new associate has now been with us a year as an attorney. She was with us six months prior to that as an intern. But as a licensed attorney now for a year, uh, now we might start considering adding an additional associate, but we would do this so incrementally um, because we want to consider being sure that as partners, we have the bandwidth to do the proper mentoring um, of an associate. I think it's smart. I think there's that's the only way to really grow and, and be happy. I mean. You can grow other ways and make a lot of money, but I think you create a lot of misery for yourself also. I think so too. And a big piece for me in creating my own law firm in practice is to be able to control and create my working environment, which means I want an office where everybody has high morale, where everybody wants to be here, where everybody has buy-in, Everyone supports the goals of the firm, the mission of the firm, and does so happily because we very deliberately created a work environment where everyone is valued and where we all um, really understand that everyone has personal lives and we understand that people have families. Uh, So those are things that we've, my partner Jenny and I have felt in prior employment situations where we were in that were really missing pieces to it being 
happy and fulfilling. And so we've been very deliberate at creating that kind of environment in our own firm. You go, um, you're with the attorney general, then you're with the public defender. We talked a little bit about that. And then next you're with um, kind of what I would call a very well-known kind of medium-sized firm, Woodhouse, Nethercott, and Roden. Yes. And that was your first kind of taste of uh, private practice. Kind of how did that transition go? And then kind of, I think we kind of got an idea of some of the things that you learned from that experience, but maybe tell us a little bit about that. And then we'll kind of talk about the steps to starting your own firm. Yeah. So that was a wonderful opportunity. I think that I was able to work as an associate at a mid-sized law firm and Certainly the biggest piece, as I mentioned, for me that was difficult in transitioning was not so much going into private practice or working in new areas of the law, which I did, but it was the billing piece. That really was something that it's almost you have to create a almost entire shift in kind of your brain and how you just think and perceive your day and be sure that you are very consistently, for me, the consistent pieces are that I am doing work that is billable, first of all, right? Important. So, So don't be spending too much time on anything that isn't actually billable because if you get caught up in that, um, you're not gonna meet your hours. And also I think just being very, very good at keeping track of your time. To me, that was just huge. I had in government practice, there was a little bit of a requirement every day at the attorney general's office to just track your time and give them a ballpark idea of what you were doing every day. But a lot of that would be in increments of a half an hour or an hour, right? And when I got into private practice, a lot of what I did was a 0.1 or five minutes of work. Right, so you're starting to really drill down to just each and every task that you're doing throughout that day and trying to be sure that you're keeping track of that in order to get the billable time um, for it. And so I found that I could no longer go a day and then maybe at five write down what I did, right? Absolutely. That was not gonna work. (laughs) No. And that had been, I had done it at the attorney general's office. So I very quickly learned that I had to all day long be just constantly in that timekeeping system software and tracking every single thing I did in order to ever have a chance of recording the billables that were required. So you did get to start with the timekeeping software? Yes. Because I had the- I have always had a software. In fact, even the attorney general's office had Nice. I I had the misfortune of starting out with like a a ledger, writing down those point ones and then wasting at least one Sunday a month entering those into Excel to generate my bills before I got software. It was a nightmare. That sounds horrible. horrible. (laughs) Yeah, no, I'm very lucky that when I did enter into the timekeeping realm, software was the norm. And so there was software. And I still hate, I mean, I, 
it, it's so impossible to generate anything with the point ones. Like people think, oh, you're filling point one for an email that probably only takes you 40 seconds, but it, it never works out. It doesn't. Like that. It's like in the point ones, you have 20 of them and, and it adds up to two and four hours of your day or five hours are gone. And Correct. Just uh, there's no, it doesn't balance. It doesn't. I completely agree. No, it really doesn't. And so, yeah, it's interesting. And I really do take into account, I've said this um, to the attorneys at my firm, where we are at this point, I would say primarily doing things like family and criminal, and that we have different billable requirements for our associate than I think you would see at a civil defense firm, for example, right? Hopefully, yes. <laughs> yes, for sure. Because when you see what they're able to do, you know, their discovery, they're going to say eight hours review discovery today, right? That's not a thing in family or criminal. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, we, like you said, we're sitting here trying to piecemeal our point ones in order to make a day of it. And so we are really cognizant that those kind of hours are not actually achievable in our area of the law. And so we definitely take that into consideration when setting our billable requirements for ourselves personally and for our associate. We we all strive to billable hours every month, even as partners, so. Well, I can't remember what year it was, but I've, there's several good ABA articles that basically say four to five billable hours. It's pretty much the most you can get in a day when you factor in all the administrative and the non-billable time that you have to do. And so I think if you're much over that, you either have huge projects that you're working on or you're probably over billing. I, I agree. I think that's probably accurate. <laughs> yeah. So you're at Woodhouse, Nethercott, and Roden, and things are going good, and you've got a good job. But at some point, you got to be thinking, maybe I can do this better on my own. How does that kind of enter your mind? And then what steps do you take to kind of prepare for that going out on your own? Yeah, absolutely. So I had considered staying with them and there were discussions about what that might look like but ultimately I just determined financially that I would prefer to attempt uh, my own practice and so even while I was still with that firm I had begun a part-time contract with the state of Wyoming as a guardian ad litem in abuse and neglect cases um, in juvenile court. And so I had discussed with the guardian ad litem program, was that tied to me individually or was that tied to the firm? And if I left, would I be able to maintain that contract? And they were very clear that the contract was with me individually and it would remain with me even if I left the firm. So that was my exit strategy, was that I had a contract that, you know, I could pay my mortgage and feed my kids and um, be able to exit from the firm and, and just start with only that. So that's how I made the transition, is I had a contract with the state that 
also allowed me to take private work, did not preclude that, and yet provided enough of a salary each month that I could make my basic payments and obligations at home. That's huge. Yeah. So was it a part-time contract or what kind of, what are the details of that contract? It is, it is. And um, this is still how they contract today, which is they contract on a flat fee basis. And so you get X amount of money a month to handle X number of cases. And so um, more money for more cases, right? So it just depends on how large of a caseload you carry with the office as to what your monthly payment will be. Um, I still have kept that contract uh, primarily because I really enjoy the work. It's some of my favorite work, uh, not because it's financially Understand. <laughs> really probably a big gain because when you're on these flat fees, it can be good or bad, right? One month, maybe you make the equivalent of your billables, but the next month you probably don't come close to the equivalent of your billables. So it tends to ebb and flow that way, um, just the workload. So that's a wonderful way to start. And then, but I guess regardless of where you start, at some point you've got to look at like adding overhead. And how did you make Absolutely. those decisions? So I, I'm fairly fiscally conservative by nature. And I will say, I do think that that has served me so well in starting a business and starting a firm. And I just have always striven to maintain very low overhead. And so when I started, I certainly wanted to maintain very low overhead. And I have very little capital that was required to start as well. I sought out to rent an office from an established attorney and firm in Cheyenne. And they gave me a great deal to just have an office. And then I paid them every month for any of the copy machine I used or uh, any kinds of expenses like that. And then set up my own phone line and so I started by purchasing a laptop, by installing a phone line, and uh, you know, getting malpractice insurance. And that was basically it. So it was me and a laptop in a rented office um, for a couple years. And that's how I started. And I think, you know, for younger lawyers or any lawyers thinking about starting on their own, there's a couple of really key lessons there. And I think the first is, you know, it's definitely possible to start fresh out of school uh, as it a is. solo. But I think the, the amount of street credibility you had made that transition much easier. And then the freedom associated with low overhead is, for me, it's almost impossible to overvalue that. I completely agree because not only does it gain you freedom and flexibility, for me, it reduces the anxiety, right? I mean, we all can agree, I think, that practicing law is, has its own stress. But then if you have stress every month 
for the business piece as well, in addition to just handling your cases and keeping your clients on track and happy. I, for me, that would be too much. I wouldn't be able to do private practice if every month I was concerned about being able to pay the bills and the overhead. That would be too stressful. And so by keeping that overhead low always, that has never been a concern and I've never had that additional stress. When I definitely learned kind of the hard way of, you know, it wasn't intentional or anything, but when I was in Jackson, my overhead for myself and one paralegal had incrementally climbed up to the point where I needed to make 25,000 a month to break even. And so I was walking oh, into the wow. office and that, that includes my salary though. So I mean, right, but still, I explain myself. Yeah. So every morning I would walk in and I'd look at this notepad that said, always be billing. And I was just so miserable because even if you'd have good months, I mean, having 75 grand in the bank meant you only had three months of like security, which never felt like much. Right. Right. And so when life gave me the opportunity to shed that overhead and, and make some changes, I was, I was all over it because I was, getting burned out and I'm still way too young to be way burned out. Yeah, absolutely. So as you start generating work, you know, what did you find were the best sources of, of, of referrals or getting those clients into the door? Absolutely word of mouth, 100%. And that's the same to this day. I would say then through word of mouth right now, it's um, as much former clients as it is other attorneys in the community. But when I started, it was primarily other attorneys in the community. So it was through, I think, the networking that I had done in my career to that point, both in government and private practice, that absolutely generated those first clients. So as soon as I determined to go out on my own, I made sure all the attorneys knew that. And um, so many attorneys were really wonderful to me to send clients um, and still to this day send clients. And I think that's a fantastic source when you're new is, you know, as long as a client can pay, that probably fits your model of what you right. need as a client. Absolutely. <laughs> and there's a lot of, of work out there and a lot of attorneys are don't know where to send work. And yeah. that's, that's an actual problem that attorneys have. And I don't think young attorneys realize that if they could just let attorneys know that they are working in an area and they're looking for work. Absolutely. I completely agree. I sent a lot of emails and letters out when I started on my own. I even um, put flyers in the boxes at the courthouse and had a little open house reception just to let people know I'm here. I'm in private practice. These are the cases I'm taking. And um, no question that that has been the most beneficial. And when we go back to kind of the overhead question, and I don't know that this applies, you know, everywhere in the nation, but I feel fortunate that in Cheyenne, um, we're a growing, I think, economy and a growing community. And so there isn't necessarily a shortage of clients and part of the low overhead is I've never really needed to spend money to advertise or market. Um, the clients have flowed, I think, naturally through those other means and avenues. And so I don't have a chunk of money every month 
that goes towards advertising and marketing that I think a lot of firms probably spend a great deal of money on. Absolutely. I mean, we're definitely in the personal injury uh, litigation uh, and those clients are hard to get. And you have to right. you have to devote some resources to Google, and you have to devote a lot of your time to like generating web traffic through SEO and things like that. Right, right, exactly. Yeah. So it's definitely a balancing act. Mm-hmm. It is. I would agree. And so you've gotten things going. You're up and flowing, but I'm assuming that, like most of us, you were not a master at getting paid by your clients when you first started. Oh my gosh, no question that that's true. Um, <laughs> yeah, I was not. I I think I always did fairly well in asking for an initial retainer that was probably close to reasonable. And I held to that pretty steadfast. But those retainers can be gone so quickly and that was definitely a mistake I made early on, was not staying on top of that and not um, being sure that um, the client had enough in their retainer or that they were paying me on a regular basis each month while I continued to work on their case, right? So um, yeah, that was a huge piece um, and learning curve, definitely. And so at some point, did it just become obvious that you had to change how you were, you know, dealing with clients? It absolutely did. I, it really just took, I mean, I could even think of the exact client that just kind of pushed me over, um, that really walked out on some significant fees. And that was so frustrating to me. And I felt almost scammed. I felt that this person never intended to probably pay. That's brutal. So that's brutal. Yeah. It's different when it's the client who maybe really, truly can't, right? You have a different feeling about that client. But when it was the client that could have paid and literally walked out on fees because he just felt he could get away with it, and was truly scamming me for, for that work. Uh, that really broke the camel's back for me. I was, I was done messing around with letting these things kind of get away from me. And I really did start changing things and procedures. Did you do that on your own or did you read books? How did you gain the skills to make the changes that need to be made? I definitely talked to other attorneys in private practice, particularly in the areas I was practicing and got advice on what they were doing um, in order to ensure they got paid. And I will say everyone I talked to had their own frustrations. This was something that clearly I was not alone <laughs> in, um, you know, being um, not paid even deliberately by a client. And so it was something that existed pretty universally, which is unfortunate, but uh, people did have great ideas and, and strategies. And so I did start incorporating those things. And now you've got a busy law firm. You've got yourself and a full-time associate. 
Yes, I have myself and a partner and then um, a full-time associate and three staff. Okay, so even if you're frugal, you've got plenty of overhead, so you can't afford to let your AR get out of control. That's for sure. And you basically run with little to no AR, correct? Yes, that's correct. So this is an amazing thing, and many lawyers will not even believe it's possible. (laughs) In order to try and teach them how you do this, let's walk through it. Well, let's walk through it right from client selection, fee agreements, different kind of retainer structures. But then, you know, after we've gone through some of that, let's deal with the issues that's hard for all of us because we can all start with all those things. I think where most of us fail and often fail miserably is, you know, after the client's been a client for a while, they start not making payments. Yeah. And so we'll finish with that because I think that's where I've struggled and that's where most people struggle. But I think to get a picture of the proper framework to start with, like let's start with client selection all the way through like the first or second bill. Like how do you, how do you make sure you get paid every time? Absolutely. So client selection, I would say is so much of (laughs) ensuring you get paid. And so being able to learn what are the red flags of a client you don't want, right? So I have a rule that I don't want a client who has fired another lawyer. Very good rule. I think that is a red flag. If they have fired another attorney, um, I don't want their case. And that's for a number of reasons because likely the problem was the client, not the lawyer. And so likely that lawyer already struggled with that client. Additionally, that client has now probably paid significant fees to lawyer number one. Who they're not happy with. Correct. And they're probably not excited to start paying significant fees to lawyer number two where if the client even is correct that maybe lawyer number one wasn't doing a good job or things weren't happening um, that should have been or wasn't handled appropriately, I may have to repeat the work of lawyer number one to fix that case. And if nothing else, you're going to have to bill a fairly good chunk of money just to get up to speed. Absolutely. And so um, that is just overall a red flag to me, and that is it's a client that I'm interested in taking. Um, second of all, another thing that we have started requesting, I will say when you are interviewing clients, you do want to go over retainer amounts and engagement letters. I think immediately you want to talk about um how they do intend to pay when their retainer's gone, right? Explain maybe more um, to complete their case than what that initial retainer amount is. And so I think you're always going to be better off if you have a client who's willing to give you their credit card information and willing to allow you to bill their credit card in the event the retainer is gone and or willing to produce an additional substantial retainer should the first retainer um, be depleted. 
So I think having those conversations immediately, what is your plan? How is this going to go? Is really important because if they're coming in and they're saying, I am scraping together by asking every person I know to donate to me to get you the $2,500 or the $5,000 to secure you as my attorney, that's probably a red flag, right? That again, is gonna be a red flag client because if it's so difficult for them to come up with that initial retainer, how can you have any assurance that they're going to be able to pay past that when the litigation um, continues past that point? Do you look at what their goals are from the litigation also as potential red flags? I do. Um, or at least in assessing the retainer. Okay. So to the extent that someone comes in and, you know, 100% maybe in a criminal case wants a trial, 100% I will not take a plea. I want this case to go to trial. That's a different retainer. If we're going to contemplate that there won't be a plea in this case and that this is going to go to trial, we're going to talk a whole different number, um, particularly if we're looking at hiring experts and things like that. So it may not be that I wouldn't take the client, but it will change the amount the client has to have in order to retain me. Um, and that goes, I think, for civil cases as well. If they're just telling me that this is going to be the most contentious divorce I've ever done, and there's absolutely no way these two will ever agree on any custody arrangement and it will have to have a guardian ad litem and it will have to go to trial. Again, I may take the case, but we're going to be talking a different number for that retainer. When you're, when you've got a client, you know, that basically, I don't know, wants revenge almost, or yeah. wants to fight for anything. I mean, I always told them that we just can't do revenge. And usually that was a red flag for me to get them out the door to somebody else. But <laughs> I guess what I'm saying though is like, are you trying to calculate the entire cost of going to trial with that client? And then that is the retainer in that situation? No, because that could be an outrageous amount, unfortunately. And I think, I, I think that there's maybe an ethical issue with that as well. I don't want to retain people's entire life savings in my trust account, you know, in perpetuity. Right. That's not my goal either. Uh, so no, I'm, you know, even if my gut says this might be a $50,000 case, I would never ask for a retainer of that amount. Um, but I'm probably not going to ask for the minimum that I would maybe normally ask. And I have heard of some criminal matters where you know first degree potential life sentences where you would know that you would have more than fifty thousand just in your experts i have heard of you know six-figure retainers on those that weren't in my mind excessive but they were very very fact specific correct and i think that that's the only way to do that is if you can very easily articulate why you're asking for that amount of money and justify why you would have that amount of money in your trust on any given client. Yeah, I don't think it's appropriate in most situations. It's one of those. Correct. Yeah. 
And I really like the way that you said that because it's kind of one of those things where if you can think about it and then quickly run through the cost in your head and come up with 150,000 and the person's facing life in prison, you've got to probably charge that because also the judge is never going to ever let you out of that case. That's exactly right. They're not. <laughs> Absolutely. No, you definitely need to secure something there that you will get paid. Um, I have seen attorneys in those cases secure a piece of property or, you know, something that gives them some relevant security that they know um, in the event the case does reach those levels of cost that they will be reimbursed. And I think I think that's just good business. But in the in the more typical case, uh, how do you have your fee agreement set up? Let's say not necessarily in a criminal case, but how do you protect yourself in a in a civil case so that if if it does eventually really go sideways, uh, that you can get out of the case if you want to? Absolutely. So we do have um, termination clauses within our agreement, and we have outlined as well um, duties of the client and duties of the attorney. And, and we have it set up that if we are no longer in alignment on strategy of the case, or if um, the client is not properly communicating, things like that, that we can get out, that you agree we can get out, and that we can easily withdraw from that case. So we do um, try to think ahead and put those things within our initial fee agreement. I would say, though, in my experience, the biggest piece that the court needs is to see that that person has enough time before a major event in the case to procure substitute counsel tends to be the most important thing to the court in my in my experience. And that, and would you be talking in the civil context or is in that the whole? civil context, I think, yes. You so for me then the piece of the work I do to ensure I get paid has to do with always staying on top of where a client's account is and knowing that well ahead of time before there's a trial or something so that if someone's account is depleted but we still have three months until trial that's when you move to get out you don't fight with the client about it for two more months and then try to get out weeks before trial right that's never going to happen so it's also part of being diligent about that client's accounting and um, staying on top of that, I think, is a piece in being able to potentially withdraw if necessary. Do you also do that with, say, the hiring of experts or taking of depositions where you're going to start incurring costs that you need to advance? Do you kind of make sure well in advance of that that uh, the retainer account is paid up in full? Absolutely. Yes. Yes, all of that is important to um, be sure that the money is there. You just really have to, I think, watch that. And I know as lawyers, we just want to practice law. 
right? That's what we want to do. That's what we know how to do. We don't want to look at Excel spreadsheets or QuickBooks accounts on a regular basis. But I think, unfortunately, if you are in the business of being a lawyer, that piece just has to be done. I think it's too important um, to ensuring that you're staying on top of your cases and, and getting paid. I would agree 100%. I think you either have to do it yourself or hire someone to do it, but it can't sit by the wayside. Yes, definitely. I would agree. And I think kind of along those lines, um, I would say I have, I have tried in the past to farm out to staff that conversation. And it always goes better when I'm the one who has that conversation. Clients um, want to keep their lawyer happy to an extent. I mean, if they're happy with their case and their representation, they want you to be happy too. And if they feel that you're not and you're having to express um, concerns with payment and those issues, they're, I, in my experience, they're always more likely to send the money right away after I've had that conversation versus someone on my staff. And that's really interesting to hear because I almost vary depending on the client, uh, whether I will send out the email with the invoice or whether I will have uh, Samantha or paralegal send it out. It just seems like some clients have a different relationship with the firm than others. Sure, sure, I could see that too. Um, I just have found that the money shows up so much faster after I have the contact. <laughs> Maybe that's it could be a side gig of yours. <laughs> I know, I know, I don't know. Maybe I'm scary when I call and tell people. Um, but also along those lines, I, I just want to say I feel very strongly in, I know this can be a little bit controversial. Um, I do feel strongly in attorneys not having to continue representation and, and um, be drained of costs and resources to their detriment and to their bit, you know, detriment of their business and their ability to withdraw. I believe in that. Um, I've been very fortunate though. I can only think of one or two times that I've ever had to withdraw. So again, if you're doing that work up front, that really isn't something you should necessarily encounter. So I think that's a good piece too of doing the um, client screening and the honest conversations about costs and how these people are going to afford and or, or pay for the services should they exceed the retainer. In my experience has really prevented having to use the termination clause and having to withdraw from from cases as well. So it really is the upfront work that will be so well worth the time. And I think reflecting on my own cases and what you're saying, one thing I've realized that I've never done with clients is to have the serious conversation about what happens when the retainer is exhausted. Right. I've just assumed in my head that Okay, they can pay a five or ten thousand dollar retainer, so it shouldn't be a problem for them to um, renew it when it's it's due at the end of the month. And I don't, I have no idea why I made that assumption, but clearly, right. <laughs> it saves some heartache if I 
talked with them about how the next payments were, or, you know, because I usually do have a pretty thorough conversation that we can only control the cost of litigation so much. The other side can drive Absolutely. it wildly in, they can. in the other direction. Yeah. And so, and once the costs kind of go into uh, the control of the other side and they start to get out of hand, I think that's when the conversations that I've had uh, that have been most difficult when the, you know, the monthly evergreen retainer is depleted and the client can't, you know, pay it back. Is that, you know, how have you successfully dealt with that situation? So again, these are really hard conversations to have with clients, but I have had the conversation where we talk about what are your potential resources, right? And again, Hopefully this is actually a conversation I've had at the very beginning when I said, what are you going to do when this money is gone? But to have those conversations, um, can you get a line of credit here or there? Can you do, you know, what relatives do you have that would be willing to help? Um, can you borrow against your retirement? I mean, and those are horrible things that I hate to ask clients to do, um, I certainly don't enjoy hearing that um, my services have, have caused clients, you know, exorbitant amounts of money. Um, I wish our legal system was set up that that never happened, but it isn't. And it does happen. And um, unfortunately, I think a lot of times to get um, really high level legal representation, it does cost money. It, it just does. And so I will have conversations where I will make suggestions about different ways in which they could potentially procure money in order to continue to pay. Because I, I certainly, again, don't want to withdraw from people's cases. I, especially for non-payment. That just isn't something I want to do. Um, so I really try to work with them. I also will always take a payment plan. Um, we have a client that's paying right now that um, we won his custody case two and a half years ago. He is still paying. That's okay because he's paying. We feel that as long as the client really commits to keep paying, we will commit to not sending them to collections or doing anything like that and just accepting the payment um, as they can pay. And I think that that's important on two levels. I mean, first, that commitment from the client helps with what I find, and I think most of us find, is it gets really hard to stay motivated to help a client if you're watching their accounts receivable, you know, creep past five or 10,000. And not only that, you're out of pocket a thousand or 2000 in costs. It just gets hard to maintain your passion for that case. But if you're not seeing a payment at all, you just don't feel like they're, you feel like even though it's their case, you're the only one who's invested in it. I completely agree. I agree with that. And it is the people that, like I said, really just totally skip out on the bill, um, have no intention of paying for the service you provided. That's when I get frustrated and upset, right? That's when I started really spending the time 
to ensure that we had clients that pay and can pay because that is just a horrible feeling and it is, you lose motivation for the client and, and the case um, when it gets to that point, I would agree. Now, we've talked a lot about potentially withdrawing because of fees and, and things like that, but, and you'll have to correct me if I'm wrong, but that really is only occurring probably in a civil case. Uh, most judges are not gonna let you out of a criminal case for an unpaid bill, is that fair to say? I have never attempted to get out of a criminal case. That is a, I, they might. Here's when I've seen, well, if the criminal case requires a expert and your client can't afford the expert, I've seen that go one of two ways. I've seen the court order the public defender's office to pay for the expert but then the private attorney continues in the case. Or I've seen the court order that the case transfer to the public defender's office so that the public defender's office can okay. get the expert if that's needed. That's the only time I've seen that happen. And I have not personally had that situation, but I have seen that ordered in court before. Um, but typically the court would still like to have the private attorney maintain the case and right. actually have the public defender's office pay for the expert rather than actually move the whole case over to the public defender. So in terms of retainer and payments and things like that, kind of more nuts and bolts of like, how do you make that work in a typical criminal case? Yeah, that's a really good question. So typically what I do is I actually write into criminal agreements that there's one retainer for procuring a plea agreement and that there's an additional retainer should the client determine that they for sure want a trial. Because to me, that's the breaking point in criminal where the, my, the amount of time I spend and the costs are just vastly different, right? You don't need the expert if you're typically, if you have a plea agreement, right? You don't need to spend all of that time preparing for what could potentially be a three or five day trial if um, you have a plea agreement. And so I typically split those engagement letters out as far as this is the retainer right now as we, if you would like me to potentially work towards a plea agreement, in the event that that's not satisfactory and you don't want that and you want to exercise your right to trial, then this is the additional retainer I'll require. I like that because to me, it feels like you're going to be have a, able to have a rational conversation that isn't time pressured or anything about getting that second half of that retainer with the client. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I would also think that most clients I mean, if they really want to try the case, that's the true test of, of whether they want to try it is whether they're willing to pay. To pay. I agree. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. And I guess they would also then have a better, it would also help them, you know, in evaluating for their, their own personal self, whether or not that plea deal is something they want. I agree. It gives them the full cost benefit analysis, I think, in their mind, right? That they can really think 
these are all the consequences of clean, and these are all the potential consequences and risks of trial, um, which is always, you know, just to me, the number one thing of being an attorney is communicating with the client. You just have to have all the conversations. <laughs> you have to be constantly talking about not just their case, but your representation and your attorney and client relationship. All of the things have to be communicated at all times. I think that's also really helpful for the clients because then they can get a sense of just how much of your brain each case takes up. Oh, no question. I would agree. Yeah. They realize, you know, that, yes, I'm writing some big checks, but clearly, you know, whether my attorney wants to or not, they probably think about this while they're walking the dog on Saturday as opposed to the, how pretty the leaves are. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I do think clients start to get a picture of uh, how absorbing uh, it is as lawyers, their cases are to us. Yeah. I think too that you know that they become a little more sympathetic when they realize just the amount of cost that we have to front and the overhead that we carry as attorneys, even if we keep it fairly low. That it's not exactly like you know we're just cashing checks all day long. No, I would agree. And any time that I've had uh, clients push back on any kind of billing or fees or any of those conversations, I'm really quick to help them realize that overhead piece because I think that they miss that a lot. I think that clients don't necessarily observe that like I think they should. And when I point out uh, that in order to handle their case, I have to have an associate and a paralegal and you know, a runner and whatever the positions are, right? And that I have to pay these people living wages to do these jobs and that that's the only way I can provide the services I'm providing. And so you're not just sending me money and that money that you're giving me is not 100% clear into my pocket, right? It, it goes to the firm accounting and only a small portion of that actually comes to me, so. And I think the other thing is to help them realize just how many costs that are advanced, you know, even if it's on a monthly basis, but often, you know, almost any case where you're appointed by the state, whether it be work comp or something else, you're gonna front all those cases so that are cost until the end of the case or, or a PI case, you're gonna front all of the costs until the end. And, and those numbers can get huge over time as you build up your caseload. Oh, no question. Yeah, absolutely. Um, which is for me, why I've never had, you know, where 100% of what we're getting is from that delayed return, right? Uh, we, we tried to keep a variety of work here so that we have certain pools of money that we know come in each month. And um, then the rest is, you know, maybe a little more risky and a little more risky. There's kind of a striation and, and that's that. how we've made that work. It just eases the stress to have, you know, I call them pipelines, but, you know, regular cash flow that comes in to take care of the overhead. No question. Yeah, it absolutely eases the stress. So to finish up, I'd like to talk about 
question, which is really interesting to me right now, because we've almost pulled the trigger a couple of times in the last year on hiring an associate. And I know that you hired one a year ago. And so I'd like to hear your thoughts on knowing when to grow and kind of what you did to make that transition from, you know, basically two partners to adding an associate, which is a huge expense for a firm of two attorneys. Right. No question. Uh, for us, it was that we were, our caseloads were tapped out and the phone was ringing. So we were to the point where we were having to re-refer out cases that we would typically have taken. And so when we got to that point, that's when we said we've got to have another attorney because I don't want to turn good cases away, right? And that can be when I had said before that so much of our business was word of mouth. If the word of mouth becomes that firm's too busy, they won't take your case, the phone could stop ringing. And so I don't want to get there. I don't want to be there. I want the phone to keep ringing. I want people to know we're an active, engaged law firm taking new cases. And so it became that we had to add another attorney to handle the amount of referrals we were receiving. And I think that was the perfect gauge. It really has been um, a success and it has uh, definitely panned out for us, so. I like that, it's a good rule. Yeah. And so when you're looking at the, uh, the process of bringing on an associate, how do you budget the time that's gonna be needed for mentoring, you know, say the first six months of that associate? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know that I necessarily budgeted the time. I just added time to my day is really what I did, right? I, um, I make specific time every day um, for the associate and it probably has meant uh, some increased hours for me, I think, no question. But not to the point that I am burnt out or overwhelmed. Uh, we've been able to balance it fairly well. And I keep in the back of my mind that it's not, that time is not 100% non-billed because then that attorney goes back and does work. And that attorney is billing for the firm. And we do reap benefits that have so far outweighed the extra time that is non-billable that I am spending, if that makes sense. I feel that it has come out financially positive and not on the negative end. I didn't, we've not lost money, even though I've lost some billable time. That makes perfect sense. Uh, yeah. The first paralegal I had when I was a solo in Jackson, it was just kind of a working together and learning as we went experience. But actually, when we hired our first paralegal from LCCC, which I have to put in a huge plug, is yeah. a very good place to hire a paralegal from. Yeah. Um, but Jason, my law partner, thought I was a little crazy, but I blocked out six hours a day for the first two weeks. 
Oh, wow. Okay. To mentor. And I'd spent months developing systems for yeah. how we were going to integrate the paralegal into our office. And it really worked out really well. And that those two weeks have paid off in spades because of the amount of time it saves me now. Right. That's great. That makes sense to me. Yeah, absolutely. And so I think the value in the mentoring is, you said it earlier, I don't know that all lawyers think this way, but you know, you want to create a firm where the people want to come to work yes. and share your values. Yes. And I see so many lawyers who are at the junior partner level or that first level, and you would think they wanted to hire an associate purely to torture another human I know. for two years. <laughs> oh, I know. And it really is, unfortunately, I think so common that that's how um, firms are structured. I think especially large firms, which is why I've always very deliberately stayed away from the large law firms, because I do see that that is the somewhat corporate culture that exists there that I just wanted no part of as an associate or a partner. Either way, I would not want a part of that. That is not um, in line with my work life goals. I think it's, it's, it's almost the horrible gift that keeps on giving. It's the associate who was locked in a closet and forced to read <laughs> like boxes of worthless paper eight hours a day to fill eight and a half hours a day, six days a week. But they just want to pass that down the line. I'm like, that is no way to, to better the practice or to make yourself any happier. It isn't. And I've never bought into the overall philosophy of I had, I suffered. So you do too. I just, I don't buy into that philosophy. I, I like the philosophy. Like I would love to help you learn from my mistakes so that you don't have to make them. Oh, completely. Yes. I, I, I absolutely agree with that. Yeah. Yeah, I tell um, new attorneys and my associate all my, you know, war stories, right? I mean, it's absolutely how you learn. And I I have no problem letting them know all the stupid things I have done in the past. Are there any, along that line, are there any mistakes that you made um, when hiring an associate that you could pass along and maybe help another firm to not make? Oh, Okay. Um, well, one thing I would suggest as a, as a thing to consider is, is the idea of having them as an intern first, because I do think that gives you such a window into things that you might not otherwise see. Um, what time do they arrive at work? How long do they stay? How long do they think they should go to lunch? What, you know, just so gives you somewhat of an idea of what their work ethic is. Um, how they operate, you can spend some time with them and get a gauge for whether they're a fit just, I think, personality-wise with you. I think all those things are important. And so it's such a great sort of trial run where you're not expending a lot of money. You're paying them minimal amounts um, because they're really there for the experience, not the pay. And so I think I would just um, put that out there as a suggestion, but otherwise I think, um, it's important to ask them a lot about what their expectations are. Um, again, I think particularly with 
How much do they expect to work? How many hours do they expect to be in the office? Do they understand that, you know, eight hours in the office is probably five hours of billable? I mean, do they understand these things? And I think all of that is really important in an interview process with an associate um, because I think then hopefully you can avoid some of those pitfalls down the road. Um, I don't think every lawyer is um, meant to be in private practice. I really don't. And I think that brand new lawyers don't know what they don't know. Absolutely. So they may be a much better fit to be a government attorney, but they don't know that that's where they belong. And so I think if you can interview them and, and help flesh out those things, I think you'll have a lot more success with who you hire in, in a private practice. Very cool. And uh, lots of wonderful lessons today and we're at a pretty good stopping point. So thank you very much for yeah. joining us today and look forward to talking to you again in the future. Yeah, that's great. Thank you so much for having me, Justin. I really appreciate it. Great.